Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith Season 3. It is a good day because today I get to talk with Debbie Weiss. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Jill. It's awesome to have you here all the way from New Jersey, huh? Yep. And it's mighty cold here today for the end of March. Cold is supposed to be spring. I know. That's what I say. My tulips are up, man. They're all ready for spring. Nice. (laughs) Let me tell you a little bit about Debbie. Debbie has always had a passion for helping and teaching and caring for others. Since graduating from the George Washington University in 1985, she has done just that in various capacities through both professional and volunteer positions. Debbie has recently begun to pursue a passion of helping caregivers learn to prioritize their self-care in order to regain their lives. When Debbie is not working, she enjoys volunteering. She has worked with NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, Big Brothers Big Sisters, Organization of Autism Research, GW Alumni Association, Clinton Township PTA, and was a Clinton Township Board of Education member. Bet Debbie is a recent past president of her synagogue and remains on their board of trustees. Debbie was the first treasurer of the BW Nice Business Women's Network involving charity and education, Hunterdon County chapter, and is currently a BW Nice corporate ambassador. So you have no lack of things to do. <laughs> Actually, it's one of the things that I'm working on, which is saying no. <laughs> You know, for for doers and people who want to get stuff done, that's really hard, isn't it? Because you know you can do it. Exactly. And I just don't want to, you know, I guess maybe I'm a people pleaser. So anytime anybody asks for help, I want to really be able to do it. And uh, actually, we can talk later, but that's an act of self-care that I really am working on because I do find myself overcommitted and it's, it's not healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, tell us a little bit about, give us a little bit of perspective about your family and growing up and what, and what that was like. Sure. So I, um, I grew up in New York in Long Island and, uh, I have a brother and a younger brother and I'd say I'd have a fairly normal childhood. I was, very insecure, wouldn't speak up the kind of kid who wouldn't go into a store and order something. I'd like have to send my brother who's four years younger, which is pretty significant when you're like 12 years old, uh, into a store to get something for me. Were you just shy? Um, I was insecure. I always had weight issues and was teased a lot. And so I think that that's what created the insecurity. Once I start talking to people, then I'm I'm fine. And I always had friends and, 
and that type of thing. And then the day after I graduated from high school, my father, who had just turned 46, had a massive stroke. Mm. And he became permanently disabled. He survived. He became permanently disabled, was never able to go back to work, you know, uh, lost the use of his arm and side of his face. He learned to rewalk a little bit with a cane. And soon after the stroke, my parents wound up getting divorced. So mm-hmm. I did have to grow up fairly quickly because right. from that point on, I became his main caregiver for the next 30 years. So what um, do you know what caused the stroke or is there any any cause that can be identified? Yeah, we do know what caused the stroke. So it turns out that his carotid arteries, one of them was 100% blocked. And the other, I think, was like 85% blocked. But the one that was 100, it cut off the oxygen to that part of his brain. Wow. So he was he was fortunate to live through that then. Yes. They said that it was such a huge area that was affected in his brain that they actually were surprised that he survived. And so he didn't have use of his arms, you said? One arm. One arm. And he regained... Um, after many, many months of therapy and inpatient rehab, he did regain the use of his leg that was paralyzed and he mm. could walk for many years. He could walk with a with a cane. Did it affect his cognition at all? Definitely. Definitely. He, he definitely was not the same person. Um, I, I wouldn't say he didn't lose his mental capacity, so to speak. But he did want to try to go back to work a couple of years after the stroke, but just his attention, he couldn't. Yeah, yeah. So how come you ended up in the role of the caregiver? So like I said, my brother is four years younger than I am. I was 17 when he had the stroke. My brother was only 13. And you know, I think in our family, you know, how dynamics, family dynamics, for whatever reason, it always felt like, you know, I was daddy's little girl and my dad and I were on one team, so to speak. And my mom and my brother were on the other. Mm. And, you know, I mentioned that I was insecure and quiet and wouldn't speak up because it's amazing how when I had to step into that role and speak up on his behalf, that could do it. I could do it. I could do it because now it was about him. And, um, you know, it really, I grew, I looking back, I really did grow so much from the experience. Absolutely. I'm sure you did. Um, So you also then as an adult uh, ended up becoming a caregiver of some at some level for your sons. How did that how did that transpire? So I have a son. I have two sons. My oldest son is 21. And when he was 15 months old, he was diagnosed with developmental disabilities And that diagnosis turned into autistic spectrum disorder. And then years down the road, ADHD, depression, anxiety, and about three years ago, bipolar two disorder. 
And so throughout the journey from the minute that my son was diagnosed at, you know, as a toddler, I just kicked it into high gear. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, you get that diagnosis and it's life changing because all you envision is what's, what's my son's life going to be like. And I felt like I had this time pressure for whatever reason in my mind, I had to get him, you know, looking as typical as possible by kindergarten. So I, whatever the therapy was, whatever the cost, it didn't make a difference to me. I took out a second mortgage on my house. The amount of therapy that I took this kid to and that I had in the home, especially in those first four or five years of his life, was was unbelievable. Um, And, you know, once we reached that kindergarten milestone, which, you know what? Yeah. Did he look a lot different than he did at 15 months or three years old? Absolutely. He made incredible progress. But what the issue always is, is, well, the other kids did too, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it was always kind of like chasing that. and, And it's a lifelong journey. I could honestly talk for hours and hours on, (laughs) on that. Um, So what's it ongoing? What's it like um, as a young mom and looking at your child and understanding or beginning to understand that they're neurodivergent and trying to um, wrap your brain around that? What are your initial feelings and thoughts? Totally devastated, completely gutted. Honestly, I can, I can remember the circumstance when they said that he had autistic spectrum disorder and, you know, his therapist, nobody was sure. Um, And you just feel like it's a loss. It's just like with my father and we'll talk in a minute. I'm also the caregiver to my husband. My husband's still alive. My son's still alive. But when you get that, it's like you've lost that dream mm-hmm. of what you have for your child or what you have, you know, whatever that loss is. You know, I didn't have that relationship with my father anymore from a young age. You know, it flipped just like it would typically that relationship would typically change when, you know, your parent is 80 and you're 60 or whatever age um, it happened very early on. So with my son, it's, uh, it's, it's indescribable. It's really, really rough. And throughout his life, it's always a comparison game, especially with social media. I'm seeing yes. what the other kids are doing, the parties, the sports, the what, you know, whatever it is. And each time it's like a little, a little knife in your heart. A little grief. Yeah. You know, I, um, I read once when I was in my master's program about a parent who uh, had a child that was, I think had down syndrome and they talked about how it's like getting off the plane on the wrong country and you don't know the language and you don't know the, 
you don't know the system and you don't know how to get around and you, you know, and, and then I read some pushback from that article and they're like, this isn't like a different country. This is like, this is like grief upon grief, you know, um, trying to figure and then trying to muddle your way through it. And it was interesting how these, these authors had um, interpreted that differently. So do you feel like that's um, accurate? Does it feel like you're just in a whole different country than you expected to be in? Absolutely. I do think that I, I am in a whole different country. I wasn't, I was and am in a whole different country. And, you know, something that you kind of alluded to right from the beginning, you're searching for an answer and you'd be asking people and they'd say, well, you know, best you're his mom. Okay. I don't know best. You know, I didn't really know anything about autism until we received the diagnosis. What do I know? And it's this lost feeling. You're always searching, you know, the best thing I would network with all these other moms, which was very helpful. Well, they do, you know, this person does X and this person does Y and what am I going to do? And, you know, you still are the one who has to piece it all together because there is no set path or set answer. Right. Right. And, and there's no, there's nothing prescriptive, right? It doesn't, it doesn't fit a mold. Your child doesn't fit the mold of the next child that has autism or bipolar, or there's so there's such individual journeys. Exactly. And, and, you know, moving on with the mental illness piece, actually, eventually, around the age of 10, they remove the autistic spectrum diagnosis. They don't think that that was accurate. But, you know, my feeling is there's so many letters, diagnosis, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's really the symptom and how it affects him. And what can we do moving forward? Once he started on medication, it's, there is no medication. It's not like, okay, you have high cholesterol, you take X. It just right. doesn't work like that. And, and often, depending on the complication, you know, how complicated the individual's circumstances are, it's not just one med, it's several meds that work together. Well, if it's not working, is it this one? Is it this one? Is it just not the right dosage? And you're always tweaking. It feels like you never have it just right. You know, it's a little like playing Russian roulette. I have mental illness and that I deal with and I'm medicated, um, heavily medicated <laughs> on many different counts. And it is such a delicate balance at trying to figure out what is working, what is not working well enough, what is not working at all. I mean, it is a dance. It feels like a dance with the devil because you just never know what exactly is uh is effective and there's no perfect cure. And once you figure out something that's working, your system can change, you know, or your circumstances change. And you're just like, now we're back to ground, ground zero. It, yeah, it's, it's unbelievably tough. And, um, you, you just, um, it, it feels like there'll never be an answer. Right. Right. So as um, as they kind of transition the thought pattern from autism into into mental illness, how did that affect you thinking about your child having mental illness? 
You know, I don't really think, isn't it funny when he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, I, I didn't equate it back then with mental illness. Obviously that's what it is. It wasn't until he got the bipolar two diagnosis and maybe it was because I felt like, Oh, what was anxiety and depression? Not severe enough, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so the mental illness um, really kicked in when he was in high school and he was self, well, he still does self-medicates with marijuana mm-hmm. and he became a totally different person. You know, I, I kept describing it. It's so funny. I kept describing him as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because he is the sweetest, kindest, most loving kid. And then that switch would flip and he would be screaming and he started being destructive and punching holes in walls and Mm -hmm. ripped a door off the hinges. And my younger son is 21 months younger. He, he also has anxiety and ADHD, but not even close to anything that my older one has and, you know, there he was having to run and lock himself in his room when when my Sam is my older son's name, when Sam started having these episodes and just trying to learn to deal with it was, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey. And unfortunately, after so many different types of intervention, as this was escalating, we had to call the police. And um, on a few different occasions, and finally, the last phone call, they, ugh, I can't even, I mean, he was trying to spit in the police officer's face because the police officer wound up handcuffing him. Mm. And to watch this, to watch your son have this happen, uh, again, it's indescribable. It was probably the worst day of my life. And it was in June of 2020. So we were in lockdown. Mm-hmm. So they literally handcuffed him to a stretcher, took him away, and we could not see him because oh. he thankfully then was involuntarily committed into an institution. And we were not allowed, no visitors, no nothing because it was, you know, lockdown. And in retrospect, it was probably a good thing, but um, while he was kind of like in a holding place at the hospital until he found placement and he would be calling me just crying, mommy, mommy, it was uh, rip your heart right out of that's, your chest. That's horrible. Yeah. And so how long was he, was he committed then? Only, only about three weeks, you know, they okay. usually don't stay that long you know, just try and stabilize him and med change and right. Right. 
So you said something earlier that made me think, you know, not thinking about uh, depression and anxiety as uh, mental illness. You know, I often I often say to people that uh, those words have become interchangeable with, oh, I'm so depressed, which is just somebody saying I'm really sad or, oh, I was having a panic attack, which is just to say I was anxious when depression and anxiety are clinical terms that refer to very real illnesses, but in society, we've just kind of co-opted those words into, into emotions that we're feeling that are not clinical, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, my husband became permanently disabled as well about four years ago. And he suffers from a, a variety of physical illness, but he also suffers from mental illness. And his anxiety is, is through the roof. He cannot leave the house. He is just constantly afraid. He goes through bouts of depression. Usually he's in bed for four or five days at a time. He doesn't. You know, he gets out, out to use the bathroom. But other than that, he goes right back into the bedroom and closes the door. He, he, I have a two-story house. And like I said, he also has so many physical illnesses that he was falling all the time. So I had to move him to a room downstairs. So I don't, he and I don't sleep in the same room. So he just goes there and closes the door. And for those times... He doesn't take any medication. So he's not taking his psychiatric medication. He's not, he has Crohn's disease. He's diabetic. He has liver. He's got, again, a variety. He's, I don't even know how many pills he probably takes 30 pills a day. And he's taking none of them for five days at a time. And of course, it only makes everything worse. Right. But he cannot, and you know, and then he's crying, he's crying, he's afraid, he's going to die. He's, and he's saying these things to my kids. Um, and especially with, with my oldest, you know, it's super, super difficult. So I see in him clinical anxiety and depression and what it looks like when it's not treated appropriately. Right. And the sad thing is, you can't make anybody do it. I've, right. I've kind Absolutely. of come to that realization. You can't, I've tried so hard to help my husband to help himself. I, he can't, he can't get out of his own way and I can't do it for him. Right. And what was, what was the tipping point with your husband that happened four years ago? You know, I would say he, my husband is 64 from the time he was 50, 50 just sticks in my mind as a turning point where all of a sudden he had started to have, you know, more and more health issues. And he always had social anxiety. I never really noticed um, depression. He, He did always have the social anxiety, but was fine working with people. Nobody could ever understand. Like he was like the mayor of, of where he worked. Um, And well, actually where he worked is with me. So Mm -hmm. he and I worked together. He started, and I I didn't know if this was um, one of his physical issues, because again, he does have a lot of issues. 
he couldn't even, he would start driving to work and have to pull over and vomit because he was so anxious. He would park in the parking lot and call me and say, I can't come in. And it just continued and got worse and worse. And then he would come to the office and he wouldn't really work. Again, we're self-employed, so it's not like he's working for an employer because otherwise, obviously, this wouldn't have worked. And he would just park himself in like a back room and sleep for three hours at a time. One day, he just said, I'm done. He never stepped foot back in the office. He could never even come back into the office to say, here's what I have to do and someone else has to do it. He, that was it. He just hit a wall and I probably. Was there something that triggered that or was it just something progressively that was coming on? I think progressively that was coming on. I would say in 2019, that's when um, my son probably was first diagnosed with bipolar and things were escalating and each of their moods are t- and are tied to each other. They're very, okay. you know, they're very similar. And one is so upset when the other one is down. And then one is angry when the other one is acting, you know, it, it ugh, it's a bad situation because they're home all the time together, both with the mental illness, very similar personalities and both, uh, both feeding off tough. of each other at some yep. point. Yeah. Yep. So talk to me about yourself. This is, this is a lot. This is a lot to handle, a lot of work, a lot of emotional burden, a lot of physical burden. How do you care for yourself and maintain your own sense of stability, your, your inner core that says, I'm okay? How do you do that? So for many years, I didn't do that. All I was focused on was my father and my son, because again, my, my husband is more recent. My father passed away about 10, 10, 11 years ago, and my life was devoted to them and to working full time and to taking care of my younger son and all those regular responsibilities that we have. And physically, I didn't feel good. My weight ballooned. I stopped doing the things that I like to do. Felt like I never had free time. I was always honestly angry, resentful of other people because I was the one that was burdened. You know, I felt like the victim and um, I wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was like I said, the victim, why me? Why is this my life? You know, I, I don't understand. I just, want a nor- quote unquote normal life. Normal life, right? Yeah. So what what turned the corner for you to say I've got to take care of myself if I'm going to survive this? So for my 50th birthday, my friends convinced me to go away for a couple of days. And of course, I was like, how am I going to leave my family? What what's going to happen to them? But I did it. Of course, my family was fine. And while I was there, it was literally the first time in my adult life 
that I didn't have to worry about anybody else except Mm. for me. And I couldn't believe what that felt like, you know, what, oh, you're asking what I want to do, where I want to go to eat. Uh, I rediscovered things about myself that I really had forgotten. I lost touch with who I was as a person. And still to this day, it was probably the best two or three days that I've ever had. And when I came back, I didn't consciously do this, but subconsciously, I think I realized, hey, that felt really good. Mm -hmm. And I want more of that. And that was eight and a half years ago. And from that time, I have slowly started to incorporate all different types of self-care into my life. And I've realized that, you know, if first of all, if I'm not healthy, I'm not going to be there to take care of those that need me. That's the first thing. Second of all, and maybe it was because I was 50, this is my life too. Mm-hmm. It's not like I I am not going to care for those, you know, my loved ones, but I have to care for myself too. And I have Absolutely. to fill my own, feed my own soul. And since that time that I've been able to change my mindset and prioritize my own self-care, I'm not as angry as I'm not as resentful. I don't walk around feeling sad all the time. And why me? Do I have moments? Heck yeah, I still have moments. But it's not my overall mood. Right, right. You know, I think that, um, like you said, we go through moments where we think, you know, why is this happening? Why me? Why, you know, but it's, it's whether or not we decide to pitch a tent and camp there, you know, that makes a difference, Um, you know, and, and that's what I always think when I think about, you know, my own life and getting, getting overwhelmed, but, you know, it'd be so easy to be um, captive to your responsibilities and to your, um, and to your obligations to everybody else to a point that it almost feels selfish when you say, I'm going to take time for myself. And we really have to rewire that in our brain, don't we? Oh my goodness. Yes. Feeling selfish. I'd say, I think that the two biggest barriers when you're a caregiver is feeling selfish and having no time Mm -hmm. because you're always so busy doing something for everybody else. But in the end, certainly with my son, little different when you're talking about a parent or a spouse with my son, I'm setting an example, right? I'm showing him that it's important to prioritize yourself and to take care of yourself. And, you know, again, I used to, I I mean, I look back now, unfortunately, I didn't learn this lesson while my dad was still alive. I was mean to him, you know, Mm. because I was resentful. I clearly on a intellectual level, I know he didn't have a stroke and become disabled to do this to me. Right. But It's just natural to feel like you're the one who put me in this position. And whenever he was, I don't want to say bothering me, but he did contact a lot. He was, he was a lot. 
I I didn't show up as uh, the way I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, hindsight is always is always twenty twenty. Yeah. But you know, I think um, deciding not to live resentful and have a pity party is is huge, and it really is a decision and a moment to moment decision, and sometimes a day to day decision, and it's a lifestyle, right? Completely, completely. I mean, I've really tried to embrace so many different activities, self-care activities, things that honestly, several years ago, and I'll give you an example, several years ago, I kind of thought that's ridiculous. So the practice of gratitude, I really thought when people said, you know, oh, make a list every day of things that, you know, you're grateful for. And I, I really, I, I thought it was not a scam, but I, I, I just didn't see the value. Let's just say that. And then about six months ago, somebody gave me a gratitude journal that has prompts, which for me is easier than looking at a blank page. Right. And you fill it out in the morning and night, little different questions, the morning and night. And I've got to tell you, that I was wrong. It really makes a difference because I find myself noticing things during the day almost because I want to fill out, I want to have it in my mind to fill out the journal. It sounds ridiculous. Like, I'm no, not, you know, because I have smart. to be an, I have to be an A student, right? But <laughs> then even when I forget to fill out the journal or whatever, I still, it has really helped me cultivate more of an awareness. You know, I never noticed what it looked like when, you know, the trees are swaying or, you know, the sky, the stars are so bright. Things that, you know, you just don't pay attention to. And when you stop and when you acknowledge and are grateful for those things and look at the bigger picture, it just, it's amazing how it just kind of, makes you feel better. Well, it is. And to get outside of yourself is really, uh, really a huge thing. And to get, you know, we all spin in our own orbit, right. And, and to stop that and to stay, stay still for a moment and observe what's going on around you is a challenge, but it's also a beautiful thing that you discover things that you never, ever imagined. So what do, um, what do you do now with your understanding and, and knowing that, Um, knowing a lot about caregiving, what do you do with that information? How do you share it? How do you, how do you educate people? So my friends and family would always be, you know, wow, you have so much. I can't believe how you handle it. And my feeling was, well, what choice do I have? Right. And something happened and I doesn't matter what where I realized, boy, you know what? I have had, I've been a caregiver for over 40 years in three different capacities. And like I said earlier, for 20 years, I didn't take care of myself. And now I've seen over the past almost nine years, how my life has changed since I changed my attitude. And if there was somebody, you know, 30 years ago that could help me to see that 
and accelerated, you know, my, uh, my journey, boy, that would have been a great thing. And that's what I want to do to some, for somebody else. So I've created the caregiver support squad to do just that, to help caregivers learn to prioritize their own care so they can, you know, move past all of these negative emotions that permeate our lives. So do you provide so, uh, information, education, connectivity? What are you providing? So I have a closed Facebook group of caregivers, over 560 caregivers who also, you know, feel strongly about self-care. And so I provide tips and tricks and I have guests in there that I host some Zoom meetings with different guests that talk about different types of self-care. I have somebody coming in in a couple of weeks to do chair yoga, and I had a mindfulness meditation and essential oils and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I am soon to be launching a text club community where- Great. Yep. I'm excited about this, where I will text you a daily self-care tip or motivational message every day. And I'm excited about that because we all get up in the morning. Well, not always, but best laid plans, right? I'm going to do this, this, and this today. And then the next thing you know, it's nine o'clock and you've gone in a totally different direction. And so having, it's almost like, you know, I, I use setting the reminders on the phone, right? Right. I want to be that person's reminder to say, hey, did you do what you said you were going to do today? Or um, that's excellent. Yeah, maybe set them on the path. And then I also um, next month will be launching small group accountability coaching as well as individual coaching. That's great. That's great. Um, so your website is caregiversupportsquad.com and your Instagram handle is caregiver.support.squad and people can get a hold of you there. Is there is that the best way to get a hold of you to find out more information or to get um, support from you? Yep. So on the website, there is a wait list for the coaching. There is the link to join the Facebook group. I also have a free download to eight steps to help you find more time for self-care. There's a link to contact me, but um, anybody can DM me on Instagram or email me at Debbie at Caregiver Support Squad. And I'm happy to chat with anybody about anything. Anytime I can help. When are you going to write? When are you going to write the book? Oh, it's so funny. You should say that, you know, that keeps coming up, like it keeps coming up in my world. And you know what? So I decided um, I'm, I haven't done it, but I opened up a page on my computer and I'm just starting to basically dump one word sentences that Good come to me. That's about how you do my it. Life journey. Word by word. That's how you do it. 
Well, Debbie, it has just been really great to talk to you and I admire your strength and your courage and your resiliency. I know it's not always easy. I know it's not an easy road that you're traveling, but um, I think your ability and your passion to give back into a community is uh, to be admired. And I'm grateful for that. So thank you so much for your time and your investment into this podcast and into our listeners. And we'll be sure and get in touch with you if there's um, people that would like to have your support. So thank you. Thank you for having me. We had a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.